When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. a little bit hopeless um but then you could see that the people they just wanted something but you know i, I didn't want to give them false hope but you you want to try and um give give some hope and and i'll, I'll never forget one crushing moment when we we first broke through at the 400 meter level and it was into uh, it was a, it turned out to be a maintenance area um now there was there were two targets we identified one that was uh deeper than 700 and this other um uh, 400 meter target and the, the drill the hole went through it and thought oh okay bit of luck um this this could be a good thing and i'll never forget being in the back of the uh the truck we have a survey vehicle that has an optical viewer in it and we lowered it down the drill hole and we're all standing in the back of the truck watching the screen and you could see it moving through the casing and then it moved into a void and uh you know everyone just went silent and then into rubble it was just we couldn't go any further it was completely collapsed and and what little hope we had had, had just just gone it um and, and it was a real real crushing moment now i'll never forget that moment because immediately i thought oh this is hopeless how, how many holes do i have to drill to into rubble before do we have to do this to find 33 bodies before they say okay let's give up and oh, by that stage we'd probably been in there it was, it was past 10 day uh well, probably day 13, 14, probably, probably around there. Um, now, what, what, that, what led on from there was that that information had been leaked out to the, to the growing camp um, that was out the front. I think they called it Camp Hope, um, that camp. And so once that news had gotten out that we'd actually drilled into something and we were, we were looking um it become extremely heated out the front to the point where i i actually had to stay on the site and they, they set up a little tent for me and um i, I spent the night there I, and let, let me just say that at no point did i ever physically feel in danger but it was such uh emotionally tense that uh, i just stayed on site for the night and what uh, lawrence did was the next day he decided to get two buses and he bought uh, a selection of family members onto site and he told them a little bit more because I, I think they were controlling the information going out a little bit and when that leaked out um, it got a bit more tense. Uh, with the with the family support were they were they briefing the families uh, separately to the media or were they you mentioned before they brought them in with the media at that other time was it separated the way they handled them or was that part of the problem you think or the challenge that was created for the families? Yeah I, I didn't see uh, I didn't see anything to suggest that they were actually briefing them separately. I mean, I can only assume that. I certainly know that they were doing it all together in front of the media, but I, I suspect that they were doing it separately. As well. 
Now, we always recommend that you separate, obviously, families and those uh, families from other stakeholders. And, and in every major incident that I've been involved in, we've always briefed families first, then employees. Um, so that way we can keep them abreast of the situation and, and, and be that single source of truth. So it sounds like it's an, one of the things that they didn't um, quite do so well in this case, which, which enhances the emotion and also mm. puts pressure on the rescue. So. Yeah, it did after that. Yeah, certainly did. So you, you've hit that. You've hit that. That uh, that first breakthrough. Um, how did you readjust from there? It was tough. I'll, I'll I'll be straight up with you. It was really really tough. It, it's the lowest. Um, it's the lowest point of my life, um, and I never want to go that low again. It was. Um, it, it was reasonably devastating, and it was devastating on the team. You know, when we got back in the room, it was really really sombre. Um, so we you know we we had a little moment there of of readjusting and, and soaking that up. Um, but then we had to go again because we knew um, out the front, you know, there were people doing it tougher than us. And, and when you looked at that and the, the emotional, absolute emotional battle they were going through, it was a lot worse than mine. And I think that that kind of reset us and made us feel, well, yeah, this, this wasn't good, but gee whiz, they're doing it tougher than us. So um, it, that, that really did help us dig a little bit deeper. I think it turned into a real positive that they were there and um, it spurred us on a bit more to, to do it for them. You mentioned before that the, the potential enormity struck you, you know, how many of these holes would you have to drill? Is, is that, um, you know, how did you then, you know, like you said, you took that, that, um, that emotion from the families and, and turned it into the positive, but, but how did you do that or how did you demonstrate that leadership with your team as well? wasn't easy to, to start with um, because you know, we, we sort of, it's almost like we had to, to grieve for a little bit. Mm. Um, mm. But, you know, they, you know, we were just looking for any positive thing we can. You know, we had guys telling us that mathematically the, uh, the amount of space down there was still mathematically possible for people to survive if they were trapped. And, and, and we were just looking for anything like that to hang some, some hope onto. Um, we weren't done and dusted and, and we convinced ourselves. And I think that was the important thing. We had to convince ourselves as a team that there is still hope here and we can still do this. And people very quickly bought into that, which was great. Brilliant. Uh, so how many more holes did you start from there? And, um, and what was the sort of process you went through from there? Yeah, so I was still doing the, um, I guess, the show. You know, I was putting on the political show with the directional drilling. Um, I was still doing that. But we had started, already started the, the new plan. So we had these, uh, would have been three rigs, um, drilling towards the, the new target area. So again, hoping that, that this was this was going to pay off. And it would have been some, uh, would have been probably three, I think about three days, three, four days after that really, really, really low point that, the absolute highest point you could ever get uh, came along. So, I mean, the, the shorter the time in between, the better. But, yeah, we, we, we dug deep and we'd found some positives to cling on to. But I've got to say there, there weren't a lot more of them to cling on to. So it just worked out really, really well that, you know, some three, four days later, um, everything got completely changed and flipped on its head. Uh, if that had have dragged on for a lot longer, um, yeah, we, we most certainly would have found it a lot harder to, to really dig in deeper and get those more positives. So talk us through that that one particular hole and, and the, the process you took to get that and then obviously the breakthrough. 
Yeah, so it, uh, I mean, it always had to be a Chilean that found uh, the miners and, and, and uh, I'm more than happy and you know, I, I quite prefer to, to stay in the background a little bit. Um, yeah, I'll never forget, it would have been about uh, two o'clock in the morning. So again, I was burying myself into my work. It, it kind of helped keep me sane. Uh, they'd set up a, a, a chair for me uh, out at one of the drill rigs and I, I had the biggest coffee pot you've ever seen and and the cafe they just they just kept that thing going non-stop for me uh which was fantastic so i was drinking the coffee and i remember um i was running a, a directional downhole motor at the time and we we're doing that drilling and i noticed that the uh, the offsiders were a little bit more active than uh they had been at this time in the morning it's it's cold Old and everyone slows down. They, there was a little bit of a buzz, uh, and I, I pulled in the leading hand and said, uh, "What's what's going on here?" And he said, "Oh, there's there's, there's been some activity at the other rig," and that's it. We we, we quickly went over there, and um, what the activity was that he mentioned was that the um, the hole had broken through. So uh, it, it's it's very easy to know when you've broken through into a void with the type of drilling that we're doing. So uh, it was unmistakable. So he had broken through. Uh, we got him to stop immediately and to not drill any further because your, your equipment will snap off and break. Uh, so he did that. And that, that alone was a, a massive, massive exciting moment. That's what got everyone excited. Um, what really, really got them excited was to hear tapping on the rods because it, it is it is not a drilling sound uh, and um, everybody knew that that must be made by a human so straight away at this by this stage it would have been oh it's at 2 o'clock by this stage we knew that at least one person was alive underground making that noise they were hitting the rods uh, and and all hell broke loose. It was in the best, best way. Um, and, and things very, very quickly uh, picked up pace from there. Can you remember, did you notify someone at that point in time or did you want to ver validate or verify first? Oh, no, that, um, that was unmistakable. Um, or even if I wanted to keep that under control, there would be no way I could have done it. Um, <laughs> like I say, they, uh, I was just the gringo and uh, language was the barrier. And everyone who was there, they knew what that meant. So word got out very quickly. So by, uh, would have been by about 6, 6.30 in the morning, there was military on site. Um, we'd, uh, I had to shut down the other two rigs that I was doing the directional drilling on because uh, we were pumping massive amounts of water into the ground. And the concern there was is that we were going to actually flood where these guys were because I'd come very close to where they were, but it was just slow going. So, um, yeah, but yeah, come, come the early morning, it was just, it was going nuts. And this is where the decision was made to retrieve the drill pipe. Uh, we left the drill pipe down there for, for a few hours. And we thought, Let, let's pull it out and we'll go and get the truck and we'll drop the camera down and we'll have a look. Uh, and this is where it took a, a really, really good turn was that in the time that we'd left the drill rods down there with a, a drilling bit poking out into the, the void where they were, which is right near the refuge chamber. And then that was the target that we were aiming for too. So, um, so let's just, get, so, so you've put it straight in onto pretty well where the refuge chamber was. Yeah. Yeah. Only, only several meters away from it. It's uh, it was a, it was a really good hit. I've got to say, it's, um, <laughs> we're, we're all pretty chuffed with that. Well, that, that took the, um, 
It took the third hole to hit it, but you've got to put in perspective. This is a an area that's two and a half meters by two and a half meters. That's um, it was wound up being I think some seven hundred and forty meters the ground it's it's like and like drilling with spaghetti it was um i was well well proud of the guys they uh, they did an absolutely magnificent job they they just followed the plan um you know, I, I guess it's the importance of a good plan gets good results is is the real takeaway from that did you do the camera uh, did you put a camera into the hole at that point as well or you said you left a drilling bit down there um yeah what was the first sort of contact aside from the the tapping what was the next contact that you made all oh, right yeah so before we could yeah, obviously before we could put the camera down we had to get the the bottom hole assembly and the drill pipe out so uh the guys started retrieving that uh take some time there's a there's a lot of pipe that goes into the hole it's quite a time consuming process so that was going on and the excitement was building and building and i'm sure by this stage um the president was on a plane and he was heading to site because he certainly appeared later that day and uh the pipe came out of the hole now by this stage i'd uh, i was fairly tired i was happy but i was fairly tired and i thought there's a little bit more work to go on here uh, i just wanted to go back to to my room and and catch up on some sleep um and while I was gone, that's where the, the drill pipe came up and all of the guys down below who were trapped had written a message, wrapped it in plastic and used insulation tape and they'd sticky tape that onto the drill rods uh, just behind the drill bit, which, is, which was the best place to put it. Uh, and no one, no one was actually expecting that. And um, up it came and uh, all hell broke loose again because what it said was that all 33 was safe and um yeah that, that's when everything just uh it really changed from then on that they were all there they were all safe and it was um a little bit like they'd won the world cup just uh everything completely changed on side it was it was going quite crazy now by this stage i was i was back in copuapo which is only or oh, some 20 minutes drive uh, through the desert away away from the San Jose mine site and I was trying to get some sleep because I you know we're in day what day 21 for me and I'm pretty tired and I'm trying to sleep and I think every single person in Copuapo who could honk their car horn bang a, a rubbish bin lid or smack a pot on the ground was doing that and I'll never forget it all throughout the morning this wave of noise just swept over the the small city uh and I couldn't sleep but you know what I, even if I there was no noise I don't think I could have slept anyway the worry that you have in those situations that first breakthrough is a bit like the Sago mine incident you know where they'd found They'd found the miners. There was a report come up that they'd uh, found them, and, and obviously they were, they were deceased. You know, the opposites happened in this case, um, and and everything everything's just going off. So what 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 was the? It doesn't change though the risk that that exists for these these men underground, so that were trapped there. So what was the what was their status? Um, and then what? Did, how did the whole thing shift or change and and, and move to a different phase from there? Yeah, they were, um, I mean, they were in high spirits, obviously, but, um, you know, they, they were hungry. They, um, they'd run really, really uh, low on food. So it had been, what, some 21, 22 days. Yeah. Um, and the refuge oh, look, they, normally only hold about sort of, I think about a week's rations or something, don't they? Is that oh, right? if, yeah, if that, and between 33 hungry Chileans, it, it um, yeah, they, they were, they will, they'd run, run out of their rations. Um yeah, they were they were struggling a little bit, and I think you know it's um, 
as it came out, that, that took its toll on them um, as, as well. Uh, but yeah, but finding them, um, you know, they, they were immediately happy, elated, uh, but not long after that initial moment then, then it was like, oh, how are we going to get them out? Um, and then, then a whole separate bunch of events happened because uh, it was quite a technical challenge. It was a, it was a challenge enough to find them, uh, but to get them out was... Um, and that's where more and more equipment just kept coming on site. It was really, really impressive. The, uh, the government flew in a, a massive raised boring rig from South Africa, it must have cost them a huge amount of money, but you know, it, it drills um, super large diameter holes, does it really slow. Th- that immediately started work. Um, all these, all these other alternative plans were were put in place um, simultaneously. Oh, that's brilliant. Does your um, what was your role then? Did your role shift or change from there? Was your role purely to find them and then hand over to the other teams, or did you continue to support in other ways? No, pretty much my work was done. The, the thing that I'd specialised in and, and that, that I'd played my part. I, I mean, I most certainly could have stayed there. Um, but by, by this stage, you know, they'd, um, they'd flown in so many people and so much equipment. Uh, the phase had shifted. Um, I, I just would have been a passenger. And look, it, you know, it's, I'd enjoyed the ending of it all. But, you know, bear in mind, I... I'd spent nearly three weeks away from my family. Family is very important. So it, it's what drove me on to, to help do that job. And, and as much as I was happy for them, and it was, it was absolutely fantastic to be a part of it, um, it, was, it was just back, back to the family and back to work. I, uh, although having said that, though, um, the boss did allow me to, to come home via a place called La Serena, which, uh, which was further up on the coast. So I did get to have a little bit of um, R&R up there before coming home to, to see the girls. Did they get you back over there at all afterwards for, for recognition of the effort or, or what was it? Uh, or was there any sort of follow-up with you and, and what you did in, as part of that? Yeah, there was a little bit. I, I guess I, uh, the media thing was happening so... Um, uh, television stations were were contacting me because no one knew that I was was there until we'd actually pushed through. So we didn't make any fanfare about that. And I think the um, the Australian Australian consulate obviously knew that I was in the country, and they contacted the office, who then put them in touch with me to ask if I minded telling people that um, that I was there and I, I said, oh yeah, sure. They said, Would, um, oh, I, I can't remember the media outlet wanted to talk to you. And I said, okay. And then once I'd had that first conversation, um, they networked very well, I noticed. And my, fo- <laughs> my phone never stopped ringing after that. But um, yeah, so I, I, I was getting asked to, to stay there because channel this and channel that were coming over. But um, I didn't, you know, I, I, I really wanted to go and see my family. Uh, that was far more important. Um, so I went up saying, no, no, I'm, I'm going home. And then uh, one program said, oh, would you come back? And I said, oh, um, well, well, yeah, I would. Um, but you have to fly um, my wife back over, sort of tongue in cheek. And they said, not a problem. And, and I can tell you, Mrs. Brown was very happy about that. <laughs> no, I, I hope I hope you said it's got to be business class as well all the way my friend all the way and uh you know I said if, if there's a c130 involved the deal is off <laughs> not a chance <laughs> <laughs> reflecting on it all now 
KB, you, you, you know, if you, it's obviously nearly ten years post that. It's, uh, it's a pretty enormous, enormous, and a real tribute to you and your both your technical expertise and your own personal resilience, mate. What, what's the, what's probably the big lessons that you took away from 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 that response? Um, I guess if if I was to do it all again, knowing what I know now. Um, I would probably still uh, try to take the approach of it's a job um, to try and help keep the the focus uh, and the boundaries in place. But I, I'm I'm now much more uh, mentally and emo- I guess I'm emotionally aware of what I would be up for because that that was the thing that absolutely um, blindsided me before, um, and I would uh, probably use that where, wherever I could. Um, to my advantage, you know, to help keep that that focus and that hope going, but also to to, to better manage the um, the downside of things because I, I really didn't manage that very well. And I, I when I said before that I I'm a changed person, maybe that was sort of part of the things that changed me was that absolute um, despair that I wasn't ready for. It's, it's maybe not unlike that post traumatic stress sort of thing. It, it's um. Yeah, the, the change that's happened to me is is absolutely profound, but I I, I do like it. But it, it's nothing I um I could get away from. I I don't mind telling you that um I cry a lot more. I'm actually a little bit more emotional. Um, but uh, I'd been told before that that I probably wasn't emotional enough. So maybe that's that's just a balance. But um, yeah, I I uh, I think dealing and managing and having the emotional side of it uh, quantified and under control. Uh, would certainly be my takeaway from this. If ever this was to happen again, um, I would probably manage that a lot more better. And you can certainly use it to your advantage. And, and if you can't, at least you can uh, help manage it and um, get through it a bit better. Why do you think your experience enables you now to be emotionally more engaged? Um, I, I, to be honest, I, I really don't know. I just I just know the feeling that I went through. It's just these these massive feelings of emotion um, that I'd, I I had never really dealt in in such magnitude. You know, to to go from one extreme, probably to go from one extreme to the other, it was such a, a low 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 point of of despair and hopelessness. And and you really really felt it and lived it. And and that's what I wasn't prepared for. But I, then I also got to to feel and live. The, the polar opposite, a complete hitting high. It was, it was just like, a, I guess, a World Cup, you know, to, to, to be all the way through that complete range is, is a, I wouldn't think it's terribly common. It was, um, it was really strange. Yeah, you, you've, you've nailed it on the head around the, the post-traumatic stress aligned sort of in, uh, uh, emotional impact that, um, you know, you've gone through an extremely high period of high high focus, high intensity, high emotion. Um, you know, living and breathing those emotions um, and stepping back from that can be very challenging. So, did you do anything yourself when you got home, or did you notice? Um, you know, did your wife, did Mrs. Brown notice any any sort of differences in you immediately? And and how did you manage that sort of your own psychological or emotional welfare post? Yeah, look, I. Um, I wasn't aware of my headspace. Um, I, I, th- I thought I came back um, okay. Um, and I, I don't think the family, you know, they were happy to have me back and it was all exciting. Um, I don't think they immediately noticed anything. And I don't think I did 
to be honest with you either, up until on, on, I forget this defining moment when, um, when I knew that I'd changed was I, I'd, I'd watched a movie um, that I'd watched before this event. It was, it's a Tom Hanks movie called The Green Mile. Um, and I'd watched it before and I didn't think much of that movie, um, to be honest. And, and then I watched it again after this Chilean event and um, I couldn't help but um, sob and cry. And, and when I first watched it, I, uh, I absolutely didn't do that. And I thought, oh, my God, I've changed. Um, and, and then from then on, um, there's times, uh, times when there's something sad um, that causes me to cry. Now, the funny thing is, is I actually don't feel terribly sad emotionally, but I just can't help but, um, but cry through when, th when things are sad. And, well, you know, it, it ha it'll happen quite often when I'm on a plane flying somewhere and I watch a movie and it might not necessarily be a super sad thing uh, and I just start crying. I, I have to manage that, though. I, I travel with tissues, I can tell you. So, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you know, it was, but I think uh, my, my family, I don't think my family noticed any profound change, just some other little quirky things like that. You know, but but had we not had that really happy ending, um, maybe that would be different. Now we mentioned the happy ending, and we mentioned the despair that you felt when you briefed the families. Did any of those families get a chance to thank you whilst you're over there? Um, not, not separately. I mean, w when I drove through the front gates, it was you know it was the same amount of people all there, but for different. I guess they were all feeling quite different. It was. I, I didn't get the opportunity to, to separately um, sit down with anyone and talk to anyone straight after the event. It was just, I was getting slaps and taps and yeah, it was just, it was just coming from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was overwhelming. Um, you know, I, I did try to um, not walk through there and, and this is where Lawrence sort of recommended just, um, try to try to also keep it focused on work um you know i think they want to try and keep the the effort um separate to what was going on down the front and and i was i was kind of fine with that anyway but yeah it was hard to it was hard to say i um heaps of people were there it was just yeah, real crazy congratulations to you mate it's a real tribute to yourself and um and it deserves more recognition to be honest i think yeah, look, I, that, one thing I, I do struggle a little bit with that. I mean, I, I, I love to tell the story and live it, but I, yeah, I guess what, what I tell people is I, um, one thing I did find a little bit uncomfortable was people started using the H word, the hero word. And I, I really didn't like that. I, I like to say that I, um, I just went over and I, I just helped some people who were really down on their luck. Um, and I, I, I like walking away with it like that. What were the positive things that you took away from, from this response? Yeah, look, I think win, lose or draw, um, it would be um, understanding, accepting and establishing that there is emotion there so that you can deal with that as, um, as emotion, whether you can use it for you or not, if there's a chance to use it for you. Uh, and just that uh, with the focus of any, any effort, um, like I said previously, uh, one of the problems was everyone really really helping and over helping and you have to be be a little bit careful of that that um you can help yourself into trouble it sounds a bit crazy but i think you, you can certainly help help yourself into into a bit of trouble just to keep that that focus on that i mean the reason why everyone was helping was driven by emotion but i think just for me it makes sense to be aware of those two things as separate things and and manage them uh as separate things for me would be uh a strategy that I would certainly 
employ going forwards. Yeah, look, we always used to use the analogy that time spent in, in reconnaissance and planning is seldom wasted. So, mm. um, and that, that really does set you up for success. And it sounds like you certainly executed a very, very sound plan, mate. So, so congratulations for that fact alone. If you had a chance now, you saw some great leadership by the soundings with the mines minister over there. But if there's anyone else around the world that you'd like to speak to about a crisis event that they've been through, who would it be? Gee, that's a, that's a great question. You know, to be honest with you, I haven't given that a, a great deal. I thought, geez, there's so many. You know, I think um, you know, that even that, um, that recent event in, in Thailand with the, um, with the caves, I mean, that, that had a really... Uh, a really good outcome, but it was um, similar, if not if not the same. Uh, talking to the to the uh, the two guys there, I think that would be um, to see how how they managed it because it, it's very hard to get an idea when you see people in the media talking about it. Um, you know, you really want to pop the hood and have a look underneath and 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 talk more more deeply about things. Um, yeah, probably those two guys, the uh, the two doctors there, that. Um, that'd be really interesting to have a chat to kelvin brown what, what an amazing story of resilience what an amazing story of your your ability your technical ability your technical skill and your execution under some of the most extreme circumstances to find those 33 miners and contribute the way you did uh, to such a successful rescue operation is a real tribute to yourself um, your family support and the network that you had around you so so thank you so much for, for taking the time to share that story with us on Crisis Talks. Uh, it's been great to it's been great to to relive that story with you, and you really really appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you. No problems, Grant. I enjoyed it too. That concludes episode nine of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, we sit down with Jim Molan. Jim Molan has led a distinguished life of service, firstly as an infantry officer in the Australian Army and more recently as a senator representing the Liberal Party in New South Wales. Among many accolades and awards, Jim is a member of the Order of Australia, an officer of the Order of Australia, and in 2004, he deployed to Iraq where he served as Chief of Staff for Operations, for which he received the Distinguished Service Cross and the American Legion of Merit. Jim's insights into leadership and professional mastery are a must listen.